Good morning. I'm Tommy Allen, the lead pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church, and we're glad you're here this morning. We're continuing in our series on the Jesus Storybook Bible, basically is an overview of the whole Bible. This morning is our ninth sermon entitled The Forgiving Prince. We've got a lot to get through this morning, and so I thought we would jump right into things by starting with a confession of sin. How it works, typically, if we were in service, we would read this together and I would give you a moment to confess your sins silently. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read through it. And if you'd like to pause and confess your sin silently, that's awesome. Um, otherwise, I'm just going to continue on with an assurance of pardon. So if you want to follow along, the confession of sin is in the description. So let us pray. Covenant God, all your promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen, and all shall be fulfilled. You have spoken them, and they shall be done, commanded, and they shall come to pass. Yet we have often doubted them and lived as if there were no God. Lord, forgive us that death in life when we have found something apart from you, when we have been content with fleeting things. Through your grace, we repent. You have given us to read our pardon in the wounds of Jesus and our souls trust in him, God incarnate, the ground of our lives, the spring of our hope. Amen. At this point, if you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, I'll remind you of this fact that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's my privilege as a minister of the gospel to say to you that if you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive you. And so I can say, know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen and amen. Now, let me pray to begin our time together. We've got about 14 chapters to get through, and I'd like to try and do it in less than a half hour. So We'll see if I can. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would just come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray also that you would give me uh, clarity and even brevity as we consider this uh, story of Joseph. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. So let me start actually by asking you a question. And the question is this. When I ask you, what do you understand by the providence of God? How would you answer that question? In fact, that question is one of the most important questions you can ever grapple with, other than whether there is a God, assuming you think there is a God. Because of this reason, um, the, the way you live your life shows what you believe about the providence of God or what you believe about the providence of God should show itself in the way you live your life. It always does. And so if you're constantly fearful and worried and anxious and afraid, that says something about what you believe about God's activity in your life. And so how does the, the Heidelberg Catechism answer that question? We use Heidelberg Catechism a lot in our church. And the Heidelberg Catechism answers the question, what do you understand by the providence of God this way? It says, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds is with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. In other words... All things happen not just for a reason, but all things happen for our good and for God's glory, ultimately. And, you know, the Puritans had a, had a way of stating this, that the Puritans basically said that there were frowning providences and smiling providences, and there was just general 
providence. Now, what would a smiling providence be? For example, let's say you go to the doctor and he says, wow, Tommy, you have cancer um, and it doesn't look very good. And then miraculously, or even ultimately medically, you are healed. Well, the Puritans would call that a smiling providence. God acted on your behalf and it was something that was good, or at least good from your perspective. And what might a frowning providence be? Well, a frowning providence might be that you get diagnosed with cancer and they do everything they can and you don't survive. And the, the Puritans would call that a frowning providence where it didn't turn out good for you, at least from your perspective. You see, what's interesting is the, the, the whole idea of a smiling providence and a frowning providence are helpful in the sense that they grapple with the fact that we, we do experience like suffering and we do experience joy on one hand. On the other hand, whether it's smiling providence or whether it's frowning providence, it's still providence that it's still God moving all things for his good and our good and for his glory. So today we're going to, as we consider the story of Joseph, we're basically going to look at two uh, frowning providences and one smiling providence with a bunch of little providences all in the middle that show how God works in one man's life, Joseph, to preserve ultimately his holy seed, his, his redeemer, his blessing bearer. And interestingly enough, it's not the person in whose life he works, it's someone else. And throughout it all, all of Israel is sort of changed by the events that happen here. And we look at this story because we as the readers get to look at it sort of from, a, from God's perspective and we see God moving at every step. Now, it's something to keep in mind. If you could see your life from God's perspective, you would see the same thing. You would see him moving at every step. Things, times when you thought you were abandoned or times when you wondered if things were going to work out well, all of it. He has been working together uh, for your good and his glory. So let's look at the, th the three things, the two, two frowning and one smiling. First frowning providence we see in the story today, the forgiving prince about Joseph, is the fact that his brothers hate his guts and they sell him to slavery. Womp womp, <laughs> right? So remember, the, the, what we looked at last week was Jacob had 12 sons through two women. One of the women was, was homely and ugly and unloved by him, and she had six sons. And one of the women had two sons, the woman he loved, Rachel, and that was Joseph and Benjamin. And then his handmaidens or their handmaidens had other sons and a daughter in there. And basically, that's where the story picks up, is that Jacob and his whole family are now in Canaan. And he has one son who is his favorite. And so let me look first at Genesis chapter 37, uh, verses 1 through 4. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So what happens here? First thing we notice about Joseph, he's the main character in this story. There are really three characters in this story that, are, that sort of come to the top, Joseph and Reuben and Judah. And so what we first learn about um, Joseph is four things. It's basically first thing is he's a tattletale, right? It says that he went out in the field with his, the sons of his father's wives and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now he's a tattler. Who likes a tattler, right? We all know snitches get stitches. He was a tattletale. 
Strike one. Second thing, he was his father's sort of golden boy. He was his favorite. Remember, Joseph at some point, or Jacob was the bearer of blessing, and at some point he would have to pass that mantle on to one of his sons, and he goes ahead and does it right now. Notice that it's verse 3 says, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. You'd think Jacob would have learned something about favoritism and family dysfunction throughout his own experience with his own family, and yet apparently he didn't. And so he, he makes Joseph his favorite. And this thing where it says it made him a robe of many colors or coat of many colors, um, really that would probably be better translated that he made him a royal robe. In other words, apparently Jacob has already decided the son he thinks should have the blessing, right? He still hasn't heard from God, but he, the son he thinks should hear, get the blessing is his favorite son, which of course, that's what all the patriarchs think. So he gives him this robe of many colors, which the, the other guys don't like. It says they hated him. Um, the other thing that we see here is that he is a braggart, right? He comes to his brother. So, so his daddy's favorite, he's a tattletale, and then he goes to his brother and says, hey, y'all, I had a dream. And what was the dream? The dream was that you're all going to bow down to me someday. And they're like, um, seriously? He's like, yeah, really? And he comes back again, another dream. Yeah, I had another one that you guys are going to bow down to me someday. They can't stand him. And so they decide, let's just get rid of him. Let's kill him. Now they do that sort of in the moment because he's not with them out in the fields and Jacob sends him to check on them. And as he's going, he can't find them. He gets lost. And there's a man who just happens to be there providentially who says, oh yeah, they went over there. And when they see him coming, that's when the brothers start to hatch a scheme. Let's kill him and we'll take the robe back. We'll give it to our father, say he was slain by an animal and we won't have to deal with him anymore. And so that's exactly what they plan on doing. Reuben intervenes and says, don't do that. And Reuben has a scheme to actually save him because Reuben has gotten um, crosswise with his father, Jacob, which comes up at the very end of the book. Either way, um, while Reuben is gone, Judah steps in. He takes leadership of this group of brothers and he says, I know. Let's sell him into slavery because right at that exact moment, a caravan of Ishmaelites are coming by. It says, he, he basically it says, and then they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on the way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and now our hand be upon him. And let not our hand be upon him for he is our own brother and our flesh for, and his brothers listen to him. And so the Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Wow. Imagine you are an Israelite and you're hearing this story for the first time. And you hear that not only has um, Joseph been sold to the Ishmaelites, but he got sold to an Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. If you're an Israelite, Egypt is the worst possible place you could go. And yet that's where he's going to go. Can anything good come out of this? This is like the worst possible scenario. It's not just slavery, but it's slavery in Egypt. And we see that they do that. That's the first frowning providence, right? That, that can anything good come out of this, this frowning providence? It's bad for Joseph. The brothers go back and they tell the dad, they're like, oh, dad, sorry, but you know, here's the coat. He must've gotten killed by an animal. 
And their, their poor father is mourning and weeping. And it says in verse 35, all his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Shoal with my son this morning, son morning. Thus his father wept. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh for the, cap, the captain of the guard. So uh, the dysfunction of this family just uh, never ceases to amaze me because they, they, they've lied to their father, they've broken his heart, and then they come in, they all try to, to comfort him. And it's amazing to me that the, that the 11 brothers left and the sister, that they all can hold this together, that they all can keep this secret and act like it's, it's not only... They can act, act like they're trying to comfort their father through it. Man, I, I had three little sisters. One of them was sort of a tattletale. And every single thing that happened, man, she was off, right? She couldn't wait to tell her parents what happened. I'm amazed here, to be honest with you. Where does Joseph end up? Well, it's sort of a smiling providence. He ends up in the house of, of Potiphar. And we see here that basically in chapter 39, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar in Egypt officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had brought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. And verse two, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of, of, the Egyptian, of his Egyptian master. Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him and made, he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all things he had. So here's the thing. One thing we see in the providence of God is we know about Joseph. So while he might've been a braggart and he might've been a tattletale and he might've been the favorite, he turns out he's not a bad guy, right? And that he is very skilled at organization and he is very skilled at leadership and he's very skilled at being able to put plans together. And so he's brought into Potiphar's house and he's, he starts doing what he does. But here's the thing. The reason he was successful is not because he was so good at those things. It's because the Lord was with him. It says that over and over here. The Lord was with him and blessed his efforts. So you can be the best at anything, but if God is not with you and smiling upon your efforts, it will amount to nothing. So God is actually moving him into this position of authority in one of Pharaoh's officers' homes. Now, that's awesome, right? Well, except for Mrs. Potiphar. Mrs. Potiphar, in verse 7, it says, After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Why did she do that? Because it said in verse six, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Remember who else was like that? His mom. So apparently he got his mother's look. So he was handsome in body and in face. And Potiphar's wife, every time he would come in the house, I guess she would sort of be like hubba hubba. And eventually she said, come lie with me. And he says, how could I do this great wickedness against God? You see that Joseph is growing in his faith as well. Because on one hand, he says, you know, that would be a betrayal of Potiphar. But ultimately, he doesn't do it, not because he doesn't want to get caught. He does it because he doesn't want to sin against God. In other words, many of us in that situation, let's assume Potiphar's wife was desirable. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. Let's say she was, and she came and said, lie with me. Many characters, many characters in the Bible would have said, what if we get caught? Like they'd have been more concerned about the consequences rather than doing the right thing. Joseph is concerned with doing the right thing. And of course, when you do the right thing, it always ends up well, right? Wrong. What happens with Joseph is this. She basically invites him in again and he, she, she makes a pass at him. And as she's making a pass at him, he flees the house and leaves his robe there. And as his robe is there, 
Then Potiphar comes in and Mrs. Potiphar basically says, this Egyptian's making a mockery at me. He was trying to sleep with me, all of these kinds of things. And it said, Joseph's master took him, verse 20, and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were combined, and he was there in prison. So here's Joseph, who maybe when his brother sold him into slavery, he could have thought to himself, okay, you know what? Maybe I was a little bit over the top. Maybe I, I was a little bit too much of a tattletale. Maybe I bragged too much. Maybe I was too much of a daddy's boy. Maybe I got too much. And, and okay, I can understand like maybe why this has happened to me, right? He, in, in other words, he felt like, okay, maybe I deserve this. This being sent to prison is completely unjust. It's a complete setup. It's based on a lie. It's, it's fake news. It's whatever you want to call it. And now it's, again, it's this frowning providence. So first frowning providence, getting sold into slavery. Second frowning providence, working your way up to the top and then getting put in prison for something you didn't do. Can anything good come out of this? Well, he's in prison with, with two of Pharaoh's um, courtesans. One of them is the cupbearer to the king. The other is the baker. And basically, while he is in prison, notice what it says in verse 21 of chapter 39. It says, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever he was done there, he, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So on one hand, this is this horrible thing. On the other hand, it says the Lord is with him. You know, you know I have a, a friend who often says that God never promised us that um, bad things wouldn't happen, just that he would be with us while they were happening. And that's what's happening here. So this bad thing has happened. He's been put in prison unjustly. And yet even in prison, God is smiling upon him and he is... He is succeeding, if you will. And so he meets the cupbearer and the baker, and they both happen to have dreams one night that are disturbing to them. And they basically ask Joseph, can you interpret these dreams for us? And he says, God can, but let me see what you got. The cupbearer tells his dream and Joseph interprets it in chapter 40. In verse 13, he says, what this says for you, in three days, the Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to office and shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as, as formerly when you were his cupbearer. And then in verse 14, he says, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention to Pharaoh, me to Pharaoh so to get me out of his house. Now, the baker, by the way, the interpretation of history, not so good. He, his head would also be lifted up, but it would be lifted up from his body. He would be hanged. And so it says in verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, Pharaoh did, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. How long did he forget him? After two whole years, verse four, chapter 41, verse 1, Pharaoh dreamed that there were, he was standing by the Nile. So imagine that you're Joseph and you have just given these guys this good interpretation. The cupbearer has been restored. And now you're sure that he's going to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, you need to help my buddy out of prison because he's the one who like sort of orchestrated all this or his God did. 
And Joseph is probably sitting there uh, like I am when I order something from Amazon Prime and it's supposed to be there in two days, but it doesn't come. And then the next day you're looking out the window, it doesn't come four days, five days, every single day. You're thinking, when is this going to happen? Joseph had to be wondering, when is this guy going to remember me to Pharaoh? And he doesn't. And so two whole years pass by and then Pharaoh has a dream. He actually has two dreams. The first dream is about these fat cows that are eaten by skinny cows. And then the next dream is about these fat ears of grain that are eaten by skinny ears of grain. And he says, can anyone interpret this dream? And at that point, the cupbearer is like, hmm, I remember the guy from prison. Now, we could be cynical and say he was just doing it to get in, in greater Pharaoh's graces and waiting for an opportunity to tell him about Joseph. Either way, Joseph comes. Joseph interprets the dream by basically saying there's going to be seven good years, very fruitful years, and seven years of famine. And so he lays out a plan. So what that means is you need to store up all this food and what have you, and then the seven years of famine, you'll have food to spare. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, Joseph says, you need to find a guy who can basically administrate all this. And Pharaoh's like, I think I already did. <laughs> right? Verse 38 of chapter 41 says, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only regard the throne while I be greater than you. And so Joseph again is now lifted up a smiling providence. So there's been frowning providence, slavery, frowning providence, jail, now smiling providence. He is going to be second in command of all Egypt. He is being made a prince, functionally speaking. And in fact, he's 30 years old when this happened. Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian wife um, who is the daughter of the priest of On, which I always wonder if that was a little awkward since he was like, you know, a follower of Yahweh. And Joseph, I think, he thinks now that he has arrived, honestly. Like he's a good man, he's a moral man, he's a godly man. And he thinks, wow, now God has blessed me and everything is behind me. How do we know that? Because he has two children and that's what he names them, right? So verse 51 of verse chapter 41 says, Joseph called the name of the firstborn son Manasseh, for he said, God has made, for, has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the second son, verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So in other words, he says, but the, he names the first son after the fact that God has made him forget all the hardship in his father's house. Like all the bad things that happen, I've sort of overcome them and God has done that for me. And so we'll call him Manasseh. And the second thing is that God has made me fruitful in the land of affliction. He's made me fruitful in the middle of Egypt. Now, what's interesting is I almost wish he would have had a daughter and, and the name of the daughter was God's not done with you yet because that's what happens. J Jacob thinks or Joseph thinks now that everything is good in my life, God is done. And the answer to that is absolutely not. God is not done working with him. In fact, there's in some sense, God is just starting. So he has, he has done this. It says in verse 57, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So everyone in earth is starving. Jacob down in Israel, Canaan, hears about it. And he says to his sons, he says, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, 42 verse 1, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? 
And he said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin. Now, it's important he didn't send Benjamin for a couple of reasons. One is because now that Joseph is dead, at, at least to Jacob, he's got another favorite. So he hasn't changed as far as that's concerned. Joseph's brothers go to Egypt to get grain. Joseph recognizes them. He asks that they don't recognize him. And he asks them about, do you have a father that's not with you? Or how about another brother? And they foolishly, according to Jacob, they foolishly say, oh, yeah, we got a father. We got another brother. And so he tells them, you can't come back here for grain. He gives them grain and says, you can't come back here unless you bring that little brother with you. And in return, also, you need to leave one of the brothers with you. It's sort of like if you're going to sell your motorcycle, you hold the guy's driver's license until he comes back. He makes Simeon, the brother, stay there. And so the brothers go back and they talk to, to Jacob and they say, hey, we can't go back to Egypt to get more grain unless we have Benjamin with us. And Jacob basically says, okay, then we just won't ever go back to Egypt. In other words, he sacrifices Simeon so that he never has to put Benjamin in danger. And they don't change their mind until they literally run out of food, until they literally don't have any other options. In verse chapter 43, verse 1, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain and they brought from it, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. Now here's what's important to get. From this point on, Judah steps up as a leader. Judah does. Judah, the one who's conniving. Judah, the one who's cold-hearted. Judah, the one who sold. It was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery in the first place. Judah steps up and says, if, you, if we don't take Benjamin, they're not going to give us any grain. And he said, so we're not going to go if you don't let us take Benjamin. And Judah, Jacob says, no. And Judah says, here's what I will do then. Judah said to Israel, his father, verse 8, Send the boy with me, and we will rise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him, if I do not bring him back to you, and set him before you, then let me be, bear the blame forever. So Judah has now stepped up, and he's gone from being the cold and calculating son, and the one who is just trying to sort of benefit to being the one who's actually saying, he will come if he, I, I will take his place if he does not come back. And so they go back to Egypt. Joseph sees them again. He sees Benjamin, his brother, and he weeps. Basically, what's interesting is if you go through this whole account that on one hand is Joseph grows and he becomes more of a godly man and he becomes more of a manager and he becomes more of a prince. He's also a very tender man. He weeps three or four times just openly here, or, or he starts weeping and he cries. He has to hold himself. Like it says in verse 29 of chapter 43, he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you have spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Verse 30, then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and he wept there. Now, one of the things that ha has happened as in the first account is Jacob, the, the brothers didn't know that, that Joseph could speak Hebrew and he heard them confessing their sin about him. That made him weep as well. And so what he does is he devises one more test for the brothers is he tells his uh, steward to send the brothers back but put his cup, Joseph's cup, in the bag of, of the youngest brother, Benjamin, and then chase them down and then bring them back and arrest them. And then he makes this big deal about it. 
verse 12 of verse chapter 44 says, and he searched beginning with the eldest and the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And right at this point, again, Judah steps in. Remember Judah promised his father he would. It says they tore their clothes. The brothers did when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was there. They fell on the ground. And Joseph said, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know what a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. So in other words, Judah is saying, he doesn't try to defend himself. He basically says, you know what? Our sin has found us out. He doesn't come right out and say, we, killed, we, we thought we killed our brother and we sold him in slavery and we had all these things. He doesn't say that. Basically, he says, you got us. We're sinners. We have no excuse for ourselves. And Joseph, I think, is taken aback. And he said, oh, blah, 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 blah. You guys are fine. What, just, just leave the one brother here. And Judah, again, intercedes. And he says, Lord, let me let your servant speak in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like the Pharaoh. And he goes on to basically say, if, you, if, if Benjamin doesn't go home, it will kill his father. And verse 32 of chapter 44 says, For your servant became a pledge for the boy, saying, If I do not bring him back, then I shall bear the blame before my father all, all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Wow. So think about that. Judah is the one whose idea was to sell Joseph into slavery. And now that Joseph, through, through frowning providence, frowning providence, smiling providence, is in charge of all of Egypt, he could do whatever he wants to, to Judah. He could do whatever he wants to any of his brothers. And Judah subverts the whole plan by saying, take me instead of him. Let me be a slave so that he can be free. Joseph is broken by this. Like literally right after that, that's what happens. Verse 40, chapter 45, verse one says that Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Imagine he must've been Pharaoh's next door neighbor for Pharaoh to have heard his weeping. And he tells all the servants to go out. So it's just him and his brothers. And what does he say to them? Verse three, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. <laughs> my father is still, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Of course they were. They don't know his state of mind. They haven't talked to him for 20 years. They don't know if he's angry. They don't know what to think about him. And he says to them, come near to me, please come near. I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And I imagine they're all like, yeah, right. We did sell them into Egypt. What now? I mean, how, what could, what good can come out of this? Joseph tells them in verse five, he says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. That's why he's able to forgive them. He's able to forgive them because he, through, through over the course of all the frowning providences and the smiling providences, he has come to start to see 
from God's perspective. And he realizes that what God has done is worked all these things together so that he could actually deliver his brothers and the blessing that God would have for the whole world. Joseph sees that. And in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, when you want to emphasize something, you say it over and over again. And so the first thing he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. He says it again in verse seven, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And in verse eight, he says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. You see, his perspective is that God has been working through all of these things, all of these things. And even at the very end of the book, after Jacob dies, Jacob passes away, and when Jacob passes away, the brothers think, uh-oh, now what's going to happen? If, if Jacob is dead, now maybe Joseph is going to like stick it to us. And it says in verse 18 of chapter 50, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And then verse 20, he says, as you, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This, that, that it, 50 verse 20 is one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible, because he says what you intended for evil, you're completely responsible for your sin. And yet God worked through it to save many people. And it says he spoke kindly to them. He comforted them. He forgave them. He was the forgiving prince. And what enabled him to forgive was knowing that all of the things that had happened to him, God was using for his own goodwill and his own purposes. Now, do his brothers have to live with the consequences of their sin? Absolutely. When they're at the end of the, the book in chapter 49, when Jacob is, is going to determine who the blessing bearer is, he finally decides he's going to do things God's way. And so he's going to start with the firstborn son. And the firstborn son, though, is disqualified, Reuben. And so Reuben is disqualified because he slept with his father's concubine. That was a problem back in chapter 35, I believe. And then how about uh, Simeon or Levi? No, because they had that event where they killed almost a whole village because they had some, one person had raped their daughter. And who's the next person in line after number three? It's Judah. Judah is the one. He says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see, all of these things, they not only worked out well for Joseph, but they ultimately worked out well for you and for me. You see, I imagine Joseph, if he's like me, he's a human being. When everything happens, he gets sold into slavery, he's like, oh. This is the worst thing that ever happened. And then he goes to prison on Joseph. Oh, it's the worst thing that ever happened. All these things. And yet in those worst things, God was actually doing something great. He just couldn't see it at the time. He could only see it in hindsight. And the same will be true in our lives. 
that someday you and I will look back on our lives and we will see that all the things that have been difficult, that were actually good things that God was using in our life to move us to a place where he wanted us to be. And of course, the greatest example of a horrible thing that's actually a good thing is the cross of Jesus. You see, the cross of Jesus, if you were there, you would say, this is the worst thing that ever happened. This, this innocent man is being crucified and it was horrible. And yet the, that day, the worst thing in the world was actually the best thing in the world because through that Redeemer, we would receive forgiveness of sins. Let me finish this whole thing by reading to you um, the last few chapters or last few paragraphs in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the way that, that she ties this up. So Joseph did not punish them as brothers. He rescued them. He brought God's special family to live safely with him in Egypt. One day God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break like Joseph. He would leave home and his father, his brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the whole world. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we are able to um, trust your providence in such a way that even in the midst of hard things and difficult things and bad things, we can have some vision for the fact that you are going to work them out ultimately for our good and your glory. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. At this point, in church, if we were having a live worship service, uh, we'd stand up and sing the doxology and we would take an offering. And so I just suggest to you, if you are interested in supporting the ministry of New Hope, and many of you are, thank you for that. Um, you can find the, the information about that in the directions below. And finally, uh, we like to end, or I like to end when I preach, um, with a confession of faith or a profession of faith. And you remember at the beginning, I used the Heidelberg Catechism's question, what is, by what do you understand the providence of God? Let's close with the Westminster Larger Catechism's same question. And the question the Catechism asks is this, what is God's providence? Answer, God's providence is his completely holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing every creature and every action, ordering them all to his own glory. Amen. Let me send you from this virtual space uh, by saying the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior. The Lord your God will quiet you with his love and the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Leave this place uh, trusting in his providence. Amen and amen. Have a great week.